Our reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and I'm starting at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now please turn on to Hebrews 13. And I'm starting from verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders, and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray, so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Our great God and heavenly Father, what a joy that we have a God such as you who speaks, who's spoken definitively, clearly in the past, who, who speaks those same words to us today in a way which is utterly life-transforming. Father, many in this room have heard your words, addressed them personally, intimately, calling them to Christ. Others, perhaps less certain, but for all of us this evening, Father, please, would we hear you speak 
that we would respond rightly by clinging to Christ and honouring him with all of our lives. We pray in his great name. Amen. I'm sure many of us would have the experience of at times uh, gazing into space and asking, God, are you there? And Hebrews 1 says, God has spoken. You can know he's there. Others will sit here wondering, um, I don't know what to do. What am I meant to do next, Lord? It's wonderful to know that God has spoken. And perhaps for some of us it's a bit more acute than that. We just ask simply, do you care, Lord? Do you care for my life right now? And again, the Hebrews one would say, God has spoken. And he's spoken the words that you need. God has spoken. We're starting the book of Hebrews tonight, and um, uh, all year we'll be listening on and off to this book uh, in chunks. Yeah, we'll come and go. Uh, originally it was a sermon uh, given in the first century. Uh, the writer calls it, I don't know if you picked up right at the end uh, when Sarah read chapter 13, verse 22, he calls it a word of exhortation or encouragement. It's the same word used of uh, one of Paul's sermons in our Acts chapter 13, a word of encouragement or exhortation. So it's a sermon that was preached and it seems to have then been written down and a few little comments scribbled on at the end. It's a word of comfort, exhortation, encouragement. A sermon given to a group of believers who, well, they're in danger of giving up, is the setting into which that sermon is preached. They're having a rough time. It's written about uh, sometime in the 60s AD, before the worst of the persecution that was going to take place uh, under the Emperor Nero, you know, um, Christians being thrown to the lions, used as candles, set on fire. It hasn't got quite that bad yet, but still they're having a rough time. And you get clear hints of that in the book. So uh, in chapter 10, verse 33, the writer can say, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those being so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. You accepted joyfully the confiscation of your property. They're having a rough time back then. And so some were going to drift because, well, essentially because of the cost of following Christ. It was just too much for them to live the Christian life. And so they're drifting, not abandoning God completely, but we'll see our way as we work our way uh, through this sermon of Hebrews, that many uh, in the churches were drifting not obvious, it's not an obvious thing to do, but they were drifting towards Judaism. Odd decision, you might sit here and think. But back then that's because it, there's some state protection for Judaism. So you could be a believer in God, but not be confiscated, not have your property confiscated, not have your life certainly in danger. So it's a sort of safe way of being religious, to drift back to Judaism. I take it on many here will be tempted to do such a thing, or some one or two might, but it's not an overwhelming pressure in the UK, in London, in the 21st century. I've been given a hard time for being a Christian, I'll become a Jew. And in one sense, there's a whole sort of century's worth of history that make that a, a sort of even more unusual decision. But back then, it was a fairly obvious thing for security. 
But I guess for us, we can be tempted in a somewhat similar way to go for a sort of watered-down Christianity. A Christ zero, if you will. Same great taste, none of the fat. That sort of thing. But, you know, you can have the sort of form of Christianity. You can perhaps go to church, but just, just don't take it too seriously. Don't have a Jesus who'll transform your life. Don't have one who'll ask you to give up things for him, who'll ask for commitment. No, no, have a, have a more, well, have a Christ zero. It looks a bit like Christianity, but it's just less demanding. It's on my terms. And anyway, it's the 21st century. It's all about me. So why not have a Christianity which is all about me? And that's probably the more likely drift, rather than one, obviously, into Judaism for people like you and me. So throughout this book of Hebrews, the preacher's tactic then is to alternate. He alternates between uh, the wonder of Jesus Christ and the warning of what happens if you leave him. So you see it in this, uh, just in this opening section. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse Four is all one section, and we get the wonder of Christ, which is the whole of chapter one. And then chapter two, one to four, you get the warning. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, dot, 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 for the message, dot, 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 verse three, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Warning. It's the wonder of Christ, then the warning. If you reject him, turn from him, drift from him. You don't know where to go. But then you'll get it again, um, Chapter 2, verse 5, to chapter 4, verse 13, the wonder of Jesus, then there's a much longer warning there. And that's how the whole sermon goes. Jesus is extraordinary. Don't turn from him. It'd be horrible if you do. Jesus is amazing. Stick with him. And that's how the whole letter or sermon runs. But it begins with the assertion that God speaks. That's where the writer wants to begin. The, the fact that God speaks is a very strong theme of the letter, but presumably he begins here because one of the ways or one of the reasons that people might drift away from Jesus Christ, the authentic Jesus Christ, is because they doubt that he speaks or are uncertain how he speaks and addresses them. And if you get that uncertain, if you do sit there at home on the bus one day and say, are you there? If you're there, do you care for me? What am I expecting to get from you? If you're uncertain about how God speaks, then there's every possibility you may drift away from him. And so what the writer wants to assert, right as you very begin, is God has spoken. God has spoken. And we need to know that with, clearly, with clarity. God has spoken. Uh, I did not early enough to the office, so there's nothing on your sheet. But let's uh, break it down this way. Uh, we just do look at the past, the present, and today. Okay, very simple. The past, present, today. Chapter 1, verse 1. The past. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, he's going to draw a contrast. Let's have it. There we go. Uh, past, last days. In the past, what happened? God spoke, yes, to our forefathers. How? Through the prophets. In many parts and in many ways. Contrast, we'll get to it in a moment. In the last days, God has spoken to us through his son. 
we get there, with utter clarity. That's the contrast he's going to draw. Okay, So in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets uh, many times and in many, in, excuse me, many ways. You could literally translate that. Now, he's not going to denigrate the Old Testament here. In fact, throughout the book of Hebrews, it is quoted repeatedly as God's still speaking those words with life-changing power today. But, he is saying that in the Old Testament, God spoke in a in a piecemeal way, in many parts. There's a sense in which the Old Testament, it's a bit like a jigsaw without the box. And so, oh, look, there's a big red bus. And you work out that it's a bus. The 159, my, the best bus in London, that one. Uh, it obviously takes me home. The, um, uh, there's a bus, and so you put together all the... That's a bus, okay. There's this thing over here. What's that? Oh, no idea. How does it relate to that? Oh, no idea. There's a lot of water. Oh, that all looks the same. Uh, how do I fit it all together? I'm not quite sure. But then Jesus comes along with the box lid and says, here's how it all fits together. Here's how that prophecy and that element of the Old Testament all fit together. And you, ah, yeah. In the past, it was many times, many ways, and there's lots of truths that are clear, but you, how does it all fit? And that thing is quite confusing over here. Jesus makes it all very, very clear. We needed the Word through the Son to explain how it fitted together. You don't make sense, really, of the Old Testament without that. You can try. Obviously, if you go to the synagogue, that's what they'll do. But it doesn't make sense entirely. Or to put it another way, years ago, uh, my mum loves going to the theatre, particularly musicals. My dad thinks they are of the devil. That's a bit strong, isn't it? But music, musicals are just the most boring, inane, bland thing. That's just, you know, it just doesn't work, the two of them. So mum would often go to the theatre on her own, and years ago, it must be almost 30 years ago, she went, when it was first on in the Barbican, to Les Mis, which of course everyone now knows and has seen some form, or could sing at least some part of some song. But back then, all the critics said it was awful, uh, and it'll never work, ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> anyway, mum went along, she, she went along, and for t- she's fairly, she's a wonderful, I love her dearly, but she's quite an emotional woman, my mum. Uh, fairly heart on sleeve. And uh, for two hours, just... Str- you, know, you know, I mean, it's a miserable film, really, isn't it? Or, or musical in many ways. Just <laughs> tears. You just, I just sat there for two hours. Tears streaming and streaming and streaming. And the, the curtain came down at the end of two hours and she gathered up her stuff and is exiting the theatre. So it's the most wonderful thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Until a guy on the door grabbed her arm and said, you do know that's only the first half. <laughs> There's more? I can't take any more. <laughs> but he did persuade her, no, look, you really need to go back and see the second half. It kind of makes a lot more sense uh, when you do. That's <laughs> so obviously she did. She went in and, you know, um, uh, more tears and all is well in the end with this crazy sort of heaven scene and that stuff. Um, but of course, if you only see the first half, I mean, it's good, but what happens? What happens to... Valjean, does he escape? What happens to the lovers? What happens to Javert? You just don't get it. But if you were late, you're stuck at work and had never seen the thing and you only came in in the second half, well, you've got a truncated understanding, haven't you? You don't get the years of pursuit of Javert, the anger 
the sort of rigidity of his worldview. You don't get the transformation that had taken place in, I'm off on Alan, don't worry, enough. But you see, you don't, you get a much sort of attenuated view if you only see the second half and have missed the first two hours uh, of the whole thing. What's the writer's point here? God spoke in the past, but you do need the word of the Son to understand it rightly. You need both. Now, God continues to speak the same words that he spoke in the Old Testament, but we see them now in the light of the revealed and completed work of the Son. So there's more depth, there's more clarity. We see the point of the little details in the Old Testament narratives. Ah, okay, it all makes sense now. We need the word of the Son. So God has spoken in the past. That's the past. We're already starting to think. But let's look more explicitly then at the present. Uh, The present. So verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. This is the main clause of these uh, whole four verses. God has spoken by or in his Son. It's this big idea of this whole little section. Now what's he saying here? In these last days, that's the days since the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Ever since that decisive turning point in history, we've been in the last days, ever since then. And he's spoken to us by the Son. Now actually in these uh, verses 2 to 4, there are seven fairly magnificent affirmations or statements made about the Son. They work a little bit like this. Uh, So we see there's an emphasis here on his reigning, his work, but in the centre, his identity. So he reigns as heir, his work in creation, his identity as God, three things said about that. Then we go back to his work, at this time of purification of sins, and then out again to his reign as king. I think the point here is to focus in. If if you're going to trust this word, you need to know who speaks it. Everything there in that list is significant. We'll work through them very briefly. But the centerpiece is that the one who speaks is the living God. That's why you need to take this word so very, very seriously. Now, so what happens here? The son then. In the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. That's a bit odd. What happens here, I think, or it seems to me? The writer says, God has spoken in his son. What did he say? He doesn't actually say what the son said. He said, God has spoken, and then describes what he did. It's a bit odd, isn't it? God has spoken in his son, and he said, once upon a time there was a father with two sons, and tells the story of the parable of the lost um, prodigal son. He doesn't do that. God has spoken in his son, and let me tell you who he is and what he did. It's somewhat surprising about that. Uh, the point is, I think, that Jesus is God's speech in human form. You don't just get a description of what he said, but of who he is. The self-expression of God takes flesh. Now that is very wonderful uh, for you and for me, because there is a difference between hearing a message and meeting a person, seeing that the, the, the truths expressed in a person. You could put it this way. Uh, I've never done, uh, uh, personally, I've never done internet dating, and uh, it goes well for some, goes badly for others. I'm fully aware of that. But just to sort of daydream yourself into that scenario. So you enter all your data, and uh, out comes um, girl or bloke, 
And there's a few sentences. I like this. I don't like that. I'm into dancing and whatever. Ballet and musicals. No good for my dad. Uh, whatever they're into. There's even a photo. That's good. So you've learned quite a lot about them. But that's a whole lot of difference from actually meeting them. You meet them in the flesh. And it could be, oh, right now I understand those details. It could be, you lied. Or it could be, you know, oh, wonderful, even better than I first imagined. But there is a difference, isn't there? There is a difference between you get the message, even if it's a true message, and the reality. How that those details are lived out. How that personality, how that love for dancing, music, whatever it may be, is enfleshed. There's a real difference when you meet the person. And that's the emphasis here. God's word is revealed in a person. Not simply a message from God, but God himself. Wonderful. So what else are we told about him? He's spoken in his son. He appointed heir of all things. That's the first sort of big affirmation. Now why start there? It's the wrong way round. Why not start with, you know, no sense of chronology here? Why not start with creation and end up with, then goes to purification and then end up with ascension and reigning on high? That's a sort of nice chronological logic. I think the point is he wants to emphasize beginning and end. He reigns. He's been persecuted. Having a hard time. Boss grumpy with you because you refuse to lie for him. Just a bit tired of being the slightly odd one out in your social group. It's quite hard sometimes following Jesus wholeheartedly. He reigns! Stick with him! Stick with him! He reigns as heir. He reigns as king. That's the sort of outside. I think that's why he starts and finishes in that way. He reigns. Uh, he's the heir of all things. We get to his work of creation. Through whom? Uh, through whom the Lord made the universe. But then right at the center of this description is verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. It's one description. And the exact representation of his being. Second description. And then third little thing, he sustains all things by his word. Now let me dwell on this a bit more. These first two in particular. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation Two descriptions, and together they're necessary so we don't make a mistake. Uh, the first then is, he is the radiance, the sun, the radiance of the glory of God. Not a reflection. You know, reflection is something different. He is the radiance. The sun is the best illustration. The sun in the sky is the best illustration. The sun in the sky, we know it's there, and we receive its benefits from the rays of the sun. The radiance of the sun is emitted, and we feel it upon our faces, not every day, I know, uh, but we feel it upon our faces and say, there is a sun, and it is wonderful, and it is a great joy to us in our world that we have such a thing and be miserable without it. You can't separate the sun from the rays. No rays, is there a sun? You would know. I mentioned to some the other night. Uh, last month I was in Sydney which is, you know, it's always warm there, isn't it? Uh, and I was up in the mountains, and despite some here, and you know who you are, telling me, August in the mountains, fine. Like spring in the UK. And you know who you are who said that to me. <laughs> I 
When I arrive in the mountains, it's two degrees. And with the wind, it's colder than that. And it snows. And people come up and say, oh, you must be used to this as a Brit. <laughs> no. It was warm at home. When it's zero in London, I have clothes. Look at me. And so I had to have a trip to the local uh, charity shop and spent the weekend as a one-man jumble sale dressed up. <laughs> you know, ridiculous. Is there a sun in this wretched southern hemisphere? Does the sun exist? And then the following weekend, ah, oh, instead of that, 20 degrees. Lovely, lovely, lovely. The sun stopped mocking the stupid pom and out parted the clouds and I knew the sun was there and I felt its benefits because the rays hit my face. The radiance of the sunshine revealed the sun to me and brought me its benefits. And the Son of God is the radiance of God's glory. We know he is there because we see him, we read of him, and we feel his benefits through Jesus Christ, the Son. He's the radiance, the incarnate Son, reveals the living God to you and me, and he's wonderful. So the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now alongside that, we're told he's the exact representation of his being. Exact representation or imprint. The word is character. Jesus is the character of God's being. It's the word used in ancient times of a mould to make coins. You want to make whatever it is, a ten-pence piece. You have the, the mould, you shove a bit of metal in, whack it down. I'm sure it's more complicated than that. And uh, out comes a temp... Yeah, no, it's not, apparently. Um, it says the metallurgist, so I must be right. Brilliant. Um, it works a bit like that. You know, it's in one in much the same way as if you went to the, um, the Royal Mint, every five-pound note comes out the same because the print, well, the different numbers, I know, but, you know, the, the, uh, the print, the queen is the same on every note. The exact imprint is there. So if you're given one day in change or from a cash point a five-pound note and the queen looks like Salvador Dali has drawn her, you know, it's dodgy. You know that. Because every note that comes has the stamp, the imprint of the queen. And if you get one which has got Alex Salmond on it, you know the world has gone really mad and you're in a terrible state and the country's going to rack and ruin. But every one, every note has the exact imprint. It's precisely the same. And that's the point here. That's what's being emphasised. When you look at Jesus Christ, you see precisely the nature of God, exactly what God is like. Now, do you see how these two illustrations need to go together? It's not just that Jesus is the imprint of God, because that might suggest he's a copy like God, but a facsimile. But he's precisely the imprint, the image of God. And at the same time, he is his emanation, his radiance. Do you see how the two sort of make sure you don't make a mistake here? It's not a replica. It's not that God's put himself on the photocopier and produced another. But the sun brings us the glory of God. They work wonderfully together. So the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Third little thing here we're told about him, he sustains all things by his powerful word. Wonderful. Don't ever think, I mean, sometimes I say, God, it's all, you know, everything's so fragile at the moment. It feels like the world is held together by sellotape. That's my world. But the Lord Jesus Christ is sustaining this planet with his word. 
powerful word. No monarch gets that sort of power. No ruler. The most powerful man in the world, the president, still slightly struggling to know what to do over Syria, and even to persuade his own Congress that it's absolutely right to back him. Or the Queen. And it's a constitutional post, of course. Do you not think sometimes a bill comes before the Queen for royal assent and she has to sign it and she thinks to herself, this is a terrible law. She can't do anything about it. Her word's feeble. Charles probably will. He'll probably kick up more of a fuss, get more opinionated. But he still won't be able to do much. Feeble. This word is powerful. Sustains everything. Wonderful. So the Son gives us his presence, sorry, gives us uh, the presence and precision in manifesting God. The identity of the Son as God himself make this an absolutely trustworthy word that you can build your life upon. The Creator has spoken into this world by coming in the person of his Son. You can trust what he says. There's other things we'll get to uh, in later weeks. His work of purification for sin, his reign as king. Two very, you know, we'll get to them there throughout the book of Hebrews. His work as purification, his ascension and high, probably the two dominant notes. But in this particular, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, who he is, his identity is God. That's the key element. In the past, God spoke by his forefather, by the forefathers and the prophets. In the last days, present. He's spoken by his son. Lastly today, or in other words, so what? Let me give you three practical things that flow from this. So what? The first is this. What we have here is a final word that we cannot exhaust. Okay. It's a final word that we cannot exhaust. Now I've been away, I don't know what's going on in everyone's lives, let's only know that anyway. But you could sit here tonight and think, okay, very good, yes, Hebrews 1. I'm quite familiar with Hebrews 1. And to be honest with you, that's not what I need in my life right now. Because I've got this scenario going on. And Hebrews 1 doesn't speak into that scenario. What we need to remember is, actually Jesus Christ is who you need. And there is an inexhaustible richness to him and the words he's spoken and he has got what you need scratch a little bit work a little bit but there is always more to learn of him there is always more of your life to expose to him there's more you can bring under his lordship this is a final word we cannot exhaust so don't sit there and think, look, I've got a scratch and Jesus isn't itching it right here in Hebrews 1. Okay, just work a little bit harder. Because he is what you need. Whatever your scratch, excuse me, whatever your itch may be. It's a final word we cannot exhaust. Second thing, it's a final word that we cannot extend. Or to put it another way, in the past, in these last days, That's it. There are only two eras here. There's no third. In the past, God spoke like this. In the past, in the last days, the present, he speaks like this. And that's it. Now, some don't like that. So some today, there's, 
DX described in various ways, but some lovely idea of a sort of trajectory to what God says. Trajectory hermeneutic, posh term, woo. Uh, but don't worry about that. But the logic goes a bit like this. God spoke like that in the Old Testament. He spoke like that in the New Testament. And he speaks like this to us today. And we've just got to discover what he's saying today. Because he's got better. You know, he was grade one over in the Old Testament. He got to about grade five in the New Testament. And now he's grade eight. He's really got quite good now, God, at what he should be saying is slightly the logic of the thing. To which Hebrews 1 says, no. In the past, God spoke like this. In the present, the last days, he speaks like this. That's it. No new words. There's no third. That's it. God has spoken in his Son. Now, for every new scenario you and I encounter, we need to work out how what the Son has spoken affects us today. And when we get to chapter 4, we see it's a, <laughs> this word is not a dead word, it's living, it's active, it transforms us, the words of the living God. But this is a final word, and you can't extend it. And if you are waiting for new words, level three, you'll drift. See, that's the warning when we get to chapter two. What are we meant to do, chapter two, verse one? You and I must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so we do not drift away. There are no new words coming. Don't expect them. So look, it's a final word we cannot exhaust. It's a final word we cannot extend. Last thing. It is a personal word. It's a personal word that we cannot ignore. Well, just flick on briefly. Flick on briefly with me. So we'll, we'll get there in a few weeks. But chapter 4, verse 12. Such a wonderful truth. Chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This word that God has spoken in his Son changes us. It's the word that we need to define us. We need that word. Someone reminded me last week, some bizarre context, but anyway, someone reminded me last week about Bridget Jones, Bridget Jones' diaries, all how to day now, isn't it? But there's a funny, interesting bit of it near the beginning. She identifies herself, describes herself in this way. I am assured, I am a, excuse me, I am an assured, receptive, responsive woman of substance. My sense of self comes not from other people, but from me. Hold on a minute. From myself? That can't be right. You can't just define yourself. You look in the mirror, who am I? Who am I? No, you just got that. But you look in the mirror, who am I? You can't define yourself. All of us need a word from outside to tell us who we are. I mean, you can try, but the businessman with no clients is nothing. The, the artist with no buyer is nothing. The musician with no audience is nothing. You need someone from outside of you to tell you, to, to give you approval, to give you a sense of who you are. We all need words, and the words will define us. Words from others make us who we are, in, a, in one sense. 
you know, some of us here would have heard extraordinary words in the past, maybe from parents, maybe from others, but you're useless. You grow up hearing that over and over. That have a dramatic impact upon you. You will never, you have years of that, have a horrible impact on you. And someone comes along and says, no, 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 you can. Someone comes along and says, I love you. Oh, those words from outside change us. And Hebrews 1 would say, this is the most important word you'll ever hear. It's the most significant word that defines you. The word of Jesus Christ. God has spoken in his Son. Look, it's a, it's a final word we cannot exhaust. It's a, it's a final word we cannot extend. It's a personal word that will change you. If you listen to him, he'll mould you. He'll make you be the one he designed you to be. It's a wonderful, wonderful word that is spoken in the Son. This is a word that defines us, saves us, transforms us. It's the personal word made flesh. Wonderfully what we need for life here and now. God has spoken in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very precious word. Don't ignore it. Don't drift from it. Cherish it. Him. Let's pray together. Oh, our great God and Father, we've dabbled in truths that are wonderful. There's a wonderful depth to the things we've been looking at this evening. But at heart, it's very simple. We thank you and praise you once again that you're a God who speaks. You're a God who has spoken. We have the words that we need. We have the words that we need for life in this world to equip us, to change us, to live for you. So would we not drift from your world? but embrace it and cling to it all the more for salvation, for life. In order to praise and serve you rightly, would we cherish your word in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.